This episode is sponsored by the Jewelry Institute of America, located in Houston, Texas, serving the entire world. Learn optical diamond setting and hand engraving from world-class instructors. Check out our courses online at the Jewelry Institute of America. Welcome to the Hand Engraving Podcast, the world's greatest podcast dedicated to the art and artists of hand engraving. I'm your host, Wade Oliver Wilson, Master Engraver. Welcome back. Welcome back. Glad to be back. We are busy, busy, busy. So I guess that's a good thing that we have such a short episode this week. As some of you know, I started a Thursday night Zoom call for folks who wanted to chat with other engravers. It has been a major success, and I think everyone is enjoying themselves. I guess if they aren't, then they would stop calling in. I decided that I would take a month to extol the virtues of hand-push engraving, and so that's what we've been talking about lately. We start out with the basics, and this week we're moving up to the next step, which is applying those basic shapes and methods to our work. Uh, specifically, we'll be doing fine English scrolls. Next week, we will work on Bellino engraving. So it's been fun. I'm sure we'll get back to the normal call next month. But for now, it's hand-push January, baby. You better keep that vice hand out of harm's way. Recently, I've started teaching online design classes, and this has been a lot more fun than I thought it would be. So far, almost everyone has wanted to start from the very beginning of scroll design, and that's been interesting to show people how I go about it. It's clear that this is an area that is difficult to get your brain wrapped around for beginners. I know it was for me. One thing I'm hearing is that not everyone likes to or is uh, capable of learning from books, and it seems like being able to ask questions while you're seeing a scroll put together is a very useful thing. If you need help getting started or you just want to put some more design tools in your toolbox, get in touch with me and I'll get you set up. Classes are $50 per hour and you buy as many or as few as you want. I guess that's it. There's not much news this week. Just getting cracking on some projects. We had ice all last week and I ended up playing a lot of video games with my daughter instead of working hard. And it was worth it. I've never seen any engraving that couldn't wait, so I'd encourage you not to forget to enjoy your life. In today's episode, I talked to an original member of the Firearms Engravers Guild of America. He's a certified FIGA Master Engraver. He's engraved guns for Winchester, Colt, and Beretta, not to mention for collectors from all over the world. He is known for his scenic work, in particular his acuity in engraving lifelike animals. You know him, you love him. Mr. Marty Rubino. This is another interview from the convention hall at the 2023 FIGA convention. And you can hear all the activity that was going on around us as we talked. This is a very short interview, and so I left just about everything in it. There are some gaps due to PA announcements and other distractions. Uh, This is as real as it gets, stammering included. It was an honor to get to spend some time with Mr. Rubino. And I hope that you will enjoy listening to it. Now then. (laughs) 
Uh, it's, it's Rubino. Actually, most people end up pronouncing it anyway. Mispronouncing it, I would say. Rabino. Oh, okay. Well, very good. Well, most people call me Marty, among other things. Well, I'm glad to talk to you, Marty. Uh, how many uh, conventions do you think this makes for you? Oh, I've been doing it from day one because I'm one of the uh, founding charter members. So uh, I've done them all. I have missed over the years one when I had back surgery way back when. And I've missed the last two because I was moving and then uh, COVID. So I've only missed uh, three total So I'm aware of. You, you've been with FIGA since the very beginning. Absolutely. Were you in uh, the guild that existed before FIGA as well? There was no guild before FIGA oh. that I'm aware of. Okay. Uh, I, I think there was years ago. I think Jack Prudholm started a guild. Yeah, no, not at all. Okay, well, very good. And how did you get started in all this mess? Uh, which mess are we referring to? <laughs> <laughs> and let's start with engraving, and then we'll move on uh, to the being in the guild. We started with engraving. It's something that has always fascinated me. <clears throat> Growing up in New York City and being an art major, uh, we had the Metropolitan Museum of Art, which has one of the greatest collections of art and armor in the world. And... Uh, it was always my favorite place to hang out, so engraved arms always fascinated me. And as an artist, put the two and two together, uh, never knew how to do it. Uh, while growing up, I was always fascinated with flintlock rifles, never outgrowing Davy Crockett, and started building a couple to hunt with and then wanting to engrave the inlays, you know, the patch box and stuff like that. Not knowing how to do it, not being able to buy tools, none of this was available like it is today. And uh, wanted to try engraving. My first engraving tools were ground down chainsaw files. Oh, wow. <laughs> what uh, borough did you grow up in? The Bronx. The Bronx. And, and how was it to, um, I don't suppose there was a, a I, I'm from Texas, and I don't suppose there was a gun scene in the Bronx like that. Oh, there were, gun, there were gun stores then. Yeah. yeah. There was, and there was actually one up in Yonkers that had a, quite a nice uh, antique gun room. I see. Which I used to like going and hang out and look around. Another famous engraver from New York, or that lived in New York anyway, of course, was Nimsky. Were you aware of his work as a child? I... Uh, that's a good question. Probably when I became aware of his work was, uh, well, I'm putting a name to the work anyway, it was probably when I started engraving. I think I've seen it before, but never associated the name with that particular type of engraving. What age were you when you started out engraving? All right. Uh, when I was going to college, uh, being a teacher, I needed a master's degree to get my permanent certification in New York State uh, teachers. And uh, so uh, going to the State University College in New Paltz at night while I was working as a teacher, there was a gold and silversmithing studio there. And uh, they had some engraving tools, but no one knew how to use them. Which was, <laughs> I mean, they'd use a few for uh, setting stones. Actually, I got into this gold and silversmithing program there and started farting around with engraving tools and uh, even showing the teacher how to use them. And of course, I was using them all wrong. <laughs> and uh, I guess that's really where I started playing with it a little bit. And that would be, oh, like 1974, right around in there. Uh, the first engraving tools I actually bought, I ran into Ray Phillips from the Engraver Company. I was probably one of his first customers. Oh, I ran wow. into him in Hartford, Connecticut at a gun show there. And he was starting to sell his engraver product tools there. And it was like uh, going to FAO Schwartz and over Christmas. <laughs> and, oh, wow, here's all these toys to buy. And I bought a bunch of stuff from him. We became good friends over the years. And uh, that was more professional type engraving tools than the 
I was going to say crap, but I can't say that. <laughs> the stuff that I created to make do with over the years. So How about that? It was good. Things have evolved. Other than uh, Mr. Phillips, what were your other contemporaries in that in that time in that area of the nation? I didn't know anybody. Uh, just looking at books and stuff like that, and uh, like all of us, once we formed the guild, we realized we've been faking it all these years, and starting to help each other along the way was a great asset. You know, because we were all just uh, the blind leading the blind originally. And uh, the first real engraver I met, I was doing a show in Hartford, Connecticut, uh, you know, trying to look impressive <laughs> with some quality work, but everyone loved it, which was good. I had a guy come up to me and go, hey, who's the engraver? I go, I am. And he goes, yeah, not bad. I mean, okay, here we go. And he goes, I'm an engraver. I go, yeah, right, all over again. And he whips out a Colt loading lever for a black powder gun with a golden-laid rampant Colt horse. And I look and go, damn, you can engrave. His name was George Spring. He was a Colt engraver. Oh. <laughs> and we became good friends. And actually, George is the one that showed me how to do gold inlays. Uh, you know, so much of today's engraving world seems to focus more on the western United States. But people, I think, maybe don't realize that, you know, originally all anything industrial was happening in the Northeast. Oh, I agree and, that, with you. and that's where all those guns were coming from in the first place. Exactly. And I suppose... You know, you I, had, well, your New York-style engraving. Right. Everything was being shipped to New York, and you had a lot of your German engravers in New York, and, uh, you know, they had their studios, and a lot of work was coming and out of New York. All those guns that went out to the West for, you know, during the cowboy times... Done in New York. They all came out of New York. Absolutely. So you're, you're, uh, you're where it started. And so you got going. Did you ever become a teacher? Is that what your profession? Oh, I was a teacher for 33 years, yeah. What did you teach? Art. <laughs> oh, well, that, that, I was an art teacher and a woodshop teacher. Well, that explains uh, your wonderful uh, pictorial scenes. And uh, once you got going with engraving, uh, did it take you very long to learn to do scroll work, to design scroll work? Well, you st well I'm still learning how to design scroll work. You never stop learning. Uh, what exactly do you mean by learn to design scroll work? Let's find. I mean, I well, was doing something which I guess I was calling scroll work, but I guess it was. But was it good? Probably not. Well, you know, as a community, we all, I wouldn't say there's any written rules, but I think there's some agreed to rules that we all sort of uh, clo somewhat closely adhere to. Where I agree. Where you've got a... Uh, a well, again, not, it, again, it goes back to there were no teachers, no way, no place of learning this, and like I said, we were the blind leading the blind when we formed the guild. <laughs> well, and with helping each other, we started uh, showing each other what works and what doesn't work, and we learned from each other. This was the value of the guild. Uh, we first formed it actually at the antique gun show in uh, Vegas. I forget the year. Roger Bliley got us all together. For like that. seventy-eight and or seventy-nine. When it was announced that we uh, formed a guild, there was a good round of one moment. I hope they stop that soon. Sorry about that. A good steam locomotive coming through. <laughs> nope, here it comes again. <laughs> uh, I guess they're, they're putting in some new piles, uh, using a pile driver to put in go. a new dock or something. Um, what books did you, were available when you started out? Actually, there weren't. <laughs> I mean, uh, and yeah, literally, quite, there wasn't. There was no literature available. There was no idea where to get tools or anything like that. That's why I did the chainsaw file. And... Uh, Anything that was available might have been from some jewelry supply houses for jewelry engraving. Uh, it, uh, 
like when I took a class with Elaine Lovenberg and we were talking one evening over some drinks, libations, and we were talking about how we learned to engrave. And naturally, being from uh, Europe, uh, with the factories there, you've got a system where you start and there's an apprenticeship program. And I said to him that his class was the first formal engraving class I have ever taken, which was true. I never took a class. It wasn't available then. I mean, there's a lot of classes now, a lot of teachers, good, bad, and indifferent. And uh, just the wealth of information that is available now, it was not available then. So again, blind leading the blind, trying to help each other out. And, and not only that, but other than the guild and Mr. Bliley putting everybody together, it seems like it would have been impossible to know who else was engraving at that time. For the most part, yeah, you might pick up a name or two or a card here and there, but uh, no, this made us, uh, this united us. So who were your Yankees uh, heroes when you were a kid? Word. <laughs> you didn't like the Yankees? No, actually, I went to Yankee games or anything. I could take the bus or the train there, but my father was a Brooklyn Dodgers fan. But uh, still, I went to the games, and I had a whole bunch of autographs. I saw the good guys play, Mantle, Maris, Yogi Berra. Duke Snyder. Saw Duke. Willie Reese. Uh, Willie Mays, the polo grounds a couple of times. Yeah. I would have liked to have seen the polo grounds. When I see pictures of that. It was a weird old stadium. It, it looks really strange. You, know, you could end up sitting behind a column holding the roof up behind you, and you're looking <laughs> at the game sideways. But, uh, no, I, was there. I think I went to two games there at the Polo Grounds. Crazy. Uh, so back to what we were saying uh, about not necessarily knowing who else was engraving at that time. Uh, it pulled us all together, and then, uh, you know, probably some of the more important people that helped me when we started the Guild and became very good friends. Uh, one thing that was great, we've always said we became friends first and then formed a Guild around that. And I think that helped us perpetuate the Guild. Oh, that's excellent. And let it, and let it grow. And, uh, you know, uh, two of my, well, a lot of good friends, but two that really stand out that I became uh, really attached to, and fortunately they like me also, uh, Frank Hendricks, uh, master engraver, extreme talent, taught me a lot. And, uh, you know, ran into a few times uh, Jack Prudhomme. I don't think he remembered my name, but he kept on going, hey, New York. <laughs> <laughs> now, were, and, you, were you in his book? No. Okay, no, but you were in uh, uh, Roger's book. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, seeing these guys that you've seen in books, it was great. I bet. It was great. And, you know, Frank was a good friend, Ron Smith, of course. And, uh, you know, we helped each other, which I think helped the Guild. And uh, what was really becoming a dying art, or was at that point, too, look at it now. It's been a research, and the work being done today is fantastic. Excellent. So... Uh, when I to for the listeners, uh, I mentioned a book, and that book is of course uh, American Engravers Volume One. Right. Which at the time, it was just American Engravers. Right. Uh, and in the I think in, one of the first engraving books I bought, I got the Nimsky book. Oh yeah. Oh, well, that's a good place to oh, start. Oh yeah, great place to start. But what I was going to say about uh, Mr. Bliley's book is that. Um, before that, I don't know how. I mean, that was like a who's who in engraving. It wasn't. It wasn't. It didn't have any instruction, but it told who was doing the work. Exactly. And so, what did that mean to you to get into that book? Did that? Oh, did, it was great. It was an honor. Absolutely. But uh, had you already established? And then also, the first thing I asked him, how'd you find out about me? <laughs> because I don't know. I got you a card from someplace. <laughs> so you never know where a business card ends up. How cool. 
So um, had you already established yourself as an engraver by then? I don't know if I would call it established. I mean, I was doing some shows, uh, trying to pick up you know, some nickel-dime work here and there. So if you'd call that established, yeah, I guess. Well, I just wondered how much of a pop it gave you. Yeah, I'm not really sure. Okay. Well. I mean, mentally, it was a good pop because I met everybody else and we became friends. Well, that's all it takes. Uh, and so... You were here when the guild started, and that would have been like, what, 78 or 79, something uh, like that? Yeah, we passed the hat, put 20 bucks in it. And uh, all the big names that uh, all the younger guys look up to were there at the time, and, yeah. and they're the reason we're here today. Right. And uh, what um, in the early days of the guild, were the goals the same as they are now? Or it sounds like it was maybe leaning more towards education at that time. Well, I guess you guys would have been excited just to meet other engravers, too. Uh, yeah, we're excited to meet other engravers. Uh, we started doing some seminars you know, just for ourselves, helping each other out. And uh, I don't think the goals have changed, really. At least I hope they haven't. We've set goals, and we've just been trying to meet the goals I see. over the years. Okay. Um, when you started out engraving, were you hand-pushing or hammer and chisel? Or? Hammer and chisel to start with, yeah. And what about today? I use all three methods. Uh, hammer and chisel, I push by hand and also use some GRS power assist equipment. Yeah, that's they each a, have their advantages and disadvantages. Absolutely. Uh, how long had you been engraving before GRS came out with their pneumatic stuff, or at least when you first got to try it? First one I had, I had an old Gravermeister that I bought secondhand from somebody who tried engraving and gave up on it. Uh, i trying to think of when that was. Probably, well, let me put it this way. I have two power hones. Uh, the p one power hone I have doesn't have a serial number on it. <laughs> and I've replaced the, uh, the on-off switch twice already, and it still works. So it's a pretty old machine. I would say got to be early 80s sometime. Okay, so you were an early adopter of, of pneumatics. Oh, yeah, sure. Very good. It, it w did you face any backlash for that amongst the – was there any snobbery involved? In no, I don't think so. No. The point is, what does it look like? Sure. Sure. Well, it's a design. The cuts are the same. Just the way you're propelling the graver through the metal is different. That's all. Well, very good. Um, and uh, did you start off working on guns? or uh, I started somebody, off by... Somebody good. told me you might have been a printmaker. Uh, well, and it's interesting. No, I wasn't a printmaker, but my major in high school was printmaking. Uh, the high school I went to... New York City schools was great, the high schools, because they had some specialized schools that you had to take a test to get into. Uh, they had a school of aeronautics. They had a school of uh, performing arts. My high school was the high school of music and art, and either an art or a music major in the school. Uh, performing arts was our sister school. We finally got together. It's now called the LaGuardia School of uh, Performing and Visual Arts, I believe it is, music and art. It's down in Lincoln Center. It's a very prestigious school, always has been. Some very famous people have gone through that school over the years for various disciplines. My major, of course, was art, and I majored in printmaking, etching, woodcuts, things like that. And have those lessons that you learned in high school carried over to what you're doing today? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Sure. Or just uh, generally working with your hands, and uh, I guess the technology doesn't change well, it, too much. What's interesting, the, uh, the teacher I had in the, the print shop, uh, Bernard Kasoy, and uh, he lived in my neighborhood in the Bronx, and I saw him a few years later after I got married and I was engraving, and he really got a kick out of if I was engraving guns now, doing what I did <laughs> in high school. So, hey, it worked. So it, it made him pretty happy. <laughs> so 
so you worked for a while and kind of established yourself as an engraver. What what has been the bread and butter of your work over the years? What once you establish yourself, what what is I mean uh, by bread and butter? What do most people want me to do? Right. What are you known for? Animal scenes. Animal scenes. Yeah, I think that's the most of it. And how, I like the way I do animals. Yeah. I, matter of fact, I was talking to um, Rex Peterson this morning, and that's what he was saying he really liked about your work. Rex said that about me. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, Rex and I we go way back since uh, the beginning and. We used to room together when I was president. He was my oh. secretary and everything else. Then he started to snore, and I go, no, that's enough. <laughs> no, Rex and I are like brothers. Well, that's cool. That's that's It's really good to see so many people that have been with the Guild from the beginning that are still into it. And, and We're fading out. <laughs> well, that's... I, it's I'm, not, gl- it, I'm glad to see new people stepping up to it, the plate. It sounds a little dark, but that is part of the reason why part I'm talking life. to people. It's part of life, yeah. <laughs> and I'm trying to get everybody on the record, so... You know, what would you pay to hear what Nemsky had to say about how he learned? And, you know, and that's what that's why I'm trying to get this yeah. all on record. No, I know what you're saying. Sure, I agree with you. Once so, it's gone, it's gone. Grab it while we can. Record it while we can. Sure. So, I mean, the friendships I've had with these people that are no longer here to me are priceless. Oh, I can't even imagine. Yeah, it'd be great. Frank Andrews would call me. I'll go, hey, Marty, tell me a joke. <laughs> And I've heard some pretty wild stories about uh, how things used to go at these conventions. So I think everything seems a little tamer now. Yeah, we're older. We're not moving as fast. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, good memories, good people. Well, very good. So, um, so we're we're up to speed where you're established. How did you uh, end up out in Colorado? Uh, my brother-in-law moved out there. He was in California at the time. Moved out to Durango, and we went out to visit and go. Hey, this is pretty nice. So I figured it's a good place to retire to. Once we, uh, my wife was a teacher also. Once we retired teaching, uh, it'd be a nice place to go. Our kids, like two sons, David and Eric, would no longer be in uh, upstate New York where we were teaching. Uh, they got their own lives. They were off at college. And uh, figured, why not? This way she could be near her brother. And Durango was a great place to move to, so it just worked. It was great. It, I just I was wondering if if you had always dreamed of going out to the West. You're involved in. It, well, it, you know, it was interesting. Uh, in that area, you're always looking at cowboy movies and stuff on TV. Now, a lot of the old cowboy movies were filmed in Durango. So it's really nice going past it. Hey, I know what movie that was in. <laughs> and uh, one movie I get a kick out of, it's a movie with Clark Gable called Across the Wide Missouri where they're mountain men. And at the beginning of the movie, they've got a whole big mountain man rendezvous. My wife walks into the room. I look at the TV. And I go, all right, where is that? She looks at is that Mollus? Yeah. It was Mollus. Like, you can see the road in the background, by the way. And where they have their mountain man fort for the winter, it's where I go fishing. Oh, Probably gosh. the camera had to be on the road because, you know, you can't see what's behind the camera. But, uh, you know, it's just interesting seeing these spots where these movies were filmed. I love it. We generally touch a little bit on technical aspects of engraving. All right. So uh, I think I would like to ask you about your scene work. All right. And uh, maybe about how you go about it. I'm going to explain that tomorrow with Lee at our <laughs> seminar. I go about it, uh, well, it's nice to have a theme. And with my art background, uh, yeah, I'm thinking I'm thinking more like I'm doing a drawing. Let's, let's call it a drawing. I engrave my scenes like I draw. Okay. I even cut my lines like I draw, which I think a lot of people don't understand or can't imagine. I, I'm basically drawing with my graver. 
And are you are you working the scene down with lines first and then going back and making dots, or is it all I don't lines? know. It all depends on what I'm doing. Whatever it calls for. Whatever it calls for along the way, uh, dots, lines, lines on dots, dots on lines, go back with lines, whatever it takes to get the image that I want. But I'm developing it like I would do a drawing. Uh, I'm building the scene the way it would work. I was taught to the scene should develop altogether. You don't finish like an eyeball and do the other eyeball. Everything has to develop together because of relationships, visual relationship from one thing to another. So once I start, I get some uh, key points in that give me visual references, and then they hate when I say, I fake it. <laughs> I, I just build upon what I see in front of me and what it needs. So, well, like, like I'm drawing with a pencil. I don't know how else to do it, but I think we have a similar background in that way. And I, I think if you go around and talk to people at the show, you'll notice that a lot of people's background is in aerospace engineering or... They get very technical, and I'm not technical. Right. You, you understand that the way to get it done is how to get it done, right? Uh, well, the technical is a good way to get it done also. I'm just yeah. thinking of the visual way of getting it done and the way that I'm used to doing it being an art teacher or an art student. And how many years did you say you taught? 30 years? It was 33 years oh, I was wow. a teacher, yeah. Wow. <laughs> that must have been something. <laughs> it was interesting yeah. <laughs> most of the time. <laughs> some good times. Some good times. So uh, uh, out of all engravers, all engravers have a style that they settle into over time or at least are known for, and your scrolls are no different. than they, uh, They're definitely recognizable. Uh, That's what they keep telling me. How it <laughs> developed, I don't know. It's nothing that was a, uh, oh, a programmed effort to do. It just the way it evolved. And uh, how long into your career do you, or you may not even agree that you did settle into this design. Maybe, it, maybe. I think it's still evolving. Yeah. I'm still changing things as I go along. How much do you engrave these days? Uh, depends on the day, the weather, and everything else. <laughs> I'm not sitting down doing a 40-hour week. I didn't retire from teaching to work 40 hours. And, uh, again, it depends on the day and how I'm feeling and other appointments, helping out with the grandkids and stuff like that. So, But I have to do something or I go nuts. So, I, yes, I have to create. I have to improve. Sure. Um, it's, you, my, uh, it's my therapy. Are you still, uh, t do you still take orders? or? Do oh, you, yes. Okay, I didn't sure. know if you made things on spec or what. Uh, you know, I've never had luck doing spec pieces. Oh, yeah, Other no one does. I know over the years have had luck doing spec pieces. I never have. seems like if they come to me, they want it done their way or be part of the creative process, which I like doing. Oh, I, I like the customer being part of the creative process. Did you, uh, I, I suppose over the years, you fostered some good relationships with customers? Oh, I've had some great experience with customers over the years, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Giving me the opportunity to do things, go places I never would have dreamed of doing. Isn't that amazing? Oh, it's great. Ron Smith and I shared a customer. I, I was doing automotive paint, and Ron was doing this guy's uh, engraving. And that's actually how I got started engraving. Okay. And uh, you just never know who you're going to meet no, up there. No, you never do. And, you never do. And you just got to keep your uh, options open. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, but, uh, you meet the best people in some of the strangest places. Yeah. Uh, what, uh, what project that you've done in your engraving career are you most proud of? Ah, good question. Most proud of all of them, for some respect, but I think there's a couple that have been standout projects that uh, artistically are some of my favorites. And uh, most of them seem to be on a Winchester. Yeah. The last couple ones. Is that your favorite canvas? Uh, well, I'm, I'm, I like 1873 Winchester, just a hobby collecting them. And yeah, I like them. They've got some nice areas to work on. And uh, I've done quite a few. 
And probably the last one I did that I have a lot of time into was a, uh, and actually took best of show here a few years ago, was an 1876 Winchester I did with a hunting scene. It actually had five different scenes on it, but a progression of scenes with uh, two bulls fighting and then a uh, hunter sneaking up on two elk and standing over a downed elk and then actually packing the elk out, also by horseback. So different. there were five different panels on the gun five different scenes, almost like a progression of telling a story. And uh, it's one of my favorites. I like that one. Do your, do your scenes start out as, as a hand drawing? You know, yes and no. Uh, first thing you need, you need images. And uh, today, uh, there's no excuse not to find a good image to work from. Like, for instance, if a client tells me, yeah, I want something with a deer. First thing I say, okay, I want to see five pictures of deer that you like. <laughs> Because there's you know, a gazillion different kinds of deer, poses, things like that. So you know, you're looking for images of uh, objects or subjects that you want to put into it. And then you've got to figure out, how do I put them together into a meaningful, attractive composition? And sometimes, like say, uh, well, like on this rifle I have here, a high wall, got a bear standing over a deer, a downed deer. That's actually two bears combined into one. Right. So you got to play a little bit and see what works. Well, that's what I was wondering is, um, you know, you're an old school guy. You, you started doing this before the Internet existed. So right. you, you must have had quite a collection of either animal books or... or oh, yeah. I mean, you would buy a book for one picture that you saw you like, but today you can get it all on the Internet, which is great. <laughs> so I do a lot of the, uh, the arrangements in Photoshop on my computer. And, uh, you know, I still, I still draw. It helps me to a certain point, but at a certain point, I also have to pick up a pencil and look at what I have on the computer and turn it into a drawing. So you do use Photoshop, though? Yeah, I used to help that's, in compositions and scaling things out, sure. I think that's great. I, and uh, I, I, that used to be my job was 40 hours a week Photoshopping and Adobe okay. Illustrator. But you, you meet so many people that look down on technology and don't understand how it can be used in, in engraving. Well, a good way that I do it, put it simply, let's say I'm doing an engraving scene, I draw something out, then I cut it, and actually even though I have the design drawn out, I draw it out by hand, because it always looks different on metal than it does on paper. Yeah. So, you know, pretty much I've got an area where I think I want my scene to be, I'll cut my scroll, and basically I'll make a smoke print of that scroll. I'll scan it into my computer, now I have a dead to nuts to scale, the area that I have to put a scene in. And I use that to help compose, frame my scene as I'm trying to design it. Yeah, it, You know, uh, you mentioned that. You had a very excellent article in the Engraver uh, years ago, uh, maybe three or four years ago. And uh, it, was, it was interesting to see how you work through your design process. So if anybody... Which one was that? It was the one with the train going over... Or, or oh, the cattle or some drive? Ca cattle going over a train I'm going to go over that one again tomorrow in the seminar. And, uh, yeah, I took progression pictures of that as I was engraving it. And uh, I'll be going over that again tomorrow and just, you know, why I did this first, this second, and stuff like that, how I developed it. So I have to visualize it as I go along. And I have a few other ones where I'll be doing the same thing. Well, that's... Lee, Lee and I will be doing the seminar together because we think alike. Oh, that'll be a good one. And for people who are listening to this in the future, uh, you'll be able to buy that uh, seminar through FIGA. They, they always sell right. vi video of it. So Correct. if you're interested, please check that out. I'm trying to think if I've forgotten anything to ask you. Oh, you will tomorrow, remember. Yeah, I should have done this. 
Oh, so one of the biggest hits of the um, podcast is people like to hear about projects that did not work and things that tr totally train wrecked. Just so, you know, you're talking to a world famous engraver and you, and you get to hear about a time where a project just went tits up. And <laughs> okay. Uh, train wreck. I was engraving for myself, actually, a, a Smith & Wesson Model 60. And, uh, <laughs> oh, God, this is embarrassing. And I was I'm engraving the frame, and I tried to angle my vice a little bit, uh, just so I could see it a little better. I went out to get a cup of coffee, and I was like, bam! Well, what the heck was that? I go back to my shop, and the vice slid off the stand, fell on the floor, and landed on the frame of the Smith & Wesson revolver, bent the frame. Totally useless now. <laughs> the parts are sitting in my drawer, and it's not repairable. I can't do a darn thing with it. Oh, so that's it. That's it. Oh. I destroyed it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, most of most of these stories end up with the story of how you end up fixing it. I, I hate to uh, hear that. Can't fix it. it, it it's done. It's a goner. Well, that's that that's the winner so far as the biggest train wreck. But along with that, people always ask, "What do you do when you make a mistake?" And uh, I always say, "Be creative." And I always told my students at school, don't be afraid of a mistake. Again, what's a mistake? What I consider a mistake now, I would have been glad just to be able to do three years ago. And you learn a lot from mistakes by having to fix it. You have to be creative to fix it. So never be afraid of a mistake. And uh, you know, so everyone has their own thing. I say, be creative. One person says, oh, you get an extra leaf for free. And I always liked the answer that Frank Hendricks had. It was, I never make a mistake. I just have lapses of better judgment. <laughs> but, you know, again, really, what is a mistake? It's relative. And uh, not all mistakes are bad. Yeah, and this is art, after all. Exactly. Not all mistakes are bad. And uh, <laughs> actually, along with that, I, a client of mine uh, did a few pieces for him. In one piece, I had an animal in an oval. Actually, it was in a circle. And he commented to me how one corner of the circle was a little bit goofy. I go, really? I don't remember that. He goes, yeah. I go, gee, you want me to fix it? No. I like it the way it is. It shows it was done by hand. <laughs> well, you know, that's a, that's a very good thing to point out because the, uh, the technology to make engraved guns, in quotes, has grown to the part where they can make oh, yeah. reasonable, reasonable engraved guns with a machine now. And I think that's... The handmade part is what is what we bring to it. Right. And if it's not for that, what are what are we really doing? So, anyways. Um, In other words, make your mistakes and be proud of them. Absolutely. <laughs> to well, an extent. <laughs> <laughs> well, just do the best you can. Anyways. That's all you can do. Yeah. Well, uh, in all your years of engraving, you must have come up with some uh, some wisdom. Is there anything you'd like to pass on to someone who is just starting today? Love what you do. When you stop loving it, stop doing it. Uh, do the best you can. And uh, learn as you go along. None of us are perfect. Uh, I mean, there's stuff that I did when I started that a few customers have threatened to expose to the world unless I do this or that. I go, okay, what do you need done? <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> all of us started with stuff that we're embarrassed to show now. So don't be afraid. Oh, very good. Well, uh, I'm not going to take up any more of your time. I sure appreciate you, uh, getting to sit down and talk to you. Well, thank you. And uh, if you think of anything else, come get me and we'll record some more. Okay. <laughs> All right, Marty. Thank you very much.
That's it. That's the show. As always, I hope you enjoyed it. I invite you to visit us at the show's Instagram page, or if you prefer, you can now join us on the show's Facebook page, if that's your thing. Thank you to Marius for the music. Thank you to Richard Quakey for production help. Thanks to Marty for taking the time to talk to me, and thank you for taking the time to listen. I will see you next time. Mm -hmm.